Hey everybody, welcome into the channel, youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. I'm going to play a countdown as we get back into our Bible study, walking through the Torah, verse by verse and section by section. Tonight we got a good one, we got a hot one. Hot tamales on deck, let's do a countdown so that people can log on and I appreciate your chats. Okay, welcome in everybody. If you would do me a favor, fill the chat up. Tell me what's going on. How are you feeling tonight? Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m. The deep dive is back for part 11 of the Torah. Now, I am not going to mince words. Tonight's going to be tough. We are talking once again about the very delicate subject of slavery in the Bible. Not delicate as much as difficult. And that's why I love doing this kind of long form content on YouTube I think it's far better to do it this way or on the podcast app, if you're listening, than in the public gathering of the church, because in the public gathering of the church, people need hope. They need Christ. They need the gospel. But this content, this this avenue, this channel provides us with the time and the availability to you to really just deep dive into these difficult texts. And so when we talk about slavery, we're not talking about a light issue. We're talking about a challenging one, and I can't wait to get into it. So let's do it. The, to the Torah, the law of life, part 11. The Deep Dive, season seven presents Torah, the law of life. Yeah, I am not going to be as, I guess, pastoral tonight, as much as I want to be pastoral. That's what I am. This is not a pastoral content. Uh, this is not pastoral content in that we are going to do some examination of some linguistics in the text, some orders of the text, the context of some difficult texts. And I don't expect this content to be kind of like, you know, life giving. And again, that's why this this avenue, this venue, YouTube, is so, so beneficial for these kind of things. So let's get into it. The Bible and Slavery, part two. And I want to do one quick recap from part one, and that is the cultural gap has got to be honestly uh, admitted to, acknowledged, if you will. Slavery in Torah comes from 2,500, no, I'm sorry, 3,500 years ago. We're not talking about slavery that was established by God in the 1600s. Secondly, the slavery that was established in the New World, the Western world, and the British colonies, this, was, this is what largely frames our view. And between that 3,100-year uh, 3, gap, so you're talking about, you know, from 2,500 B.C., I'm sorry, 1,500 B.C. to the 1600s, you're talking about a 3,100-year gap. And that is a huge gap. It's a cultural, it's a massive gap. We are talking about before the Magna Carta, before the Bill of Rights, before, before the feudal and serfdom systems of both England and Russia were a thing. Please do not minimize that. I say this and I emphasize this. Because what happened on part one of slavery in the Bible is exactly what I anticipated. Someone who is not affiliated with uh, much Christianity at all had comments to say. And I got some hate and I got some genuine comments. I'm going to address one of the genuine comments. But I anticipated that because this topic is one that the Bible skeptics love to cherry pick to to validate their disbelief or rejection of God's word. And that's why we're doing this. And why I want to continue with the hard passages of the Bible. So backing up to where we left off, I want to show you the passage that we're going to deal with largely tonight. And that is this passage here in Exodus chapter uh, 20, uh, 21. When we see right here the heading in my Bible program, Laws About Slaves. 
it is not to be diminished that we are on the heels of the Ten Commandments being given. Then we go to chapter 21 of Exodus and we're right into the, the words of the covenant that stipulate about slaves, that are stipulating about the treatment of slaves. We covered uh, verses one to three, and those have been dealt with. Let's look at the passage that is difficult that we're going to be dealing with going forward in this chapter. And yeah, we're in a landmine, people. Pray for me as we continue to get through this content. Here's what it says in verse four of Exodus 21. If his master gives him, that is his slave, a wife, and she bears him sons or, or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male servants or the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for herself, for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. If he, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things for her, these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. All righty. Like I said, this content is by no means easy content, but we're going to cover it and we're going to cover it. And I think we're going to cover it well. So let's get into what I'm going to call slavery, the hard passages. Now, if I have time, we will head over to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 25, because I got a question on the channel about that from one of the Bible skeptics. And I want to answer you. I don't even know if you're going to be watching this content. I hope you do. And I hope to get to that uh, passage today. But Time might be of the essence, uh, might be limited and we won't get to it. Let's look at this phrase in verse four. Now, backing up just a little bit. Remember, if the slave comes in, remember, first off, remember, I talked to you about all the ways in which a slave was set free and then sent out with a bounty. Uh, he celebrated all the feast days. He had every Sabbath day free. The uh, festivals were his. He was circumcised. He wasn't to be um, captured. Slave trading which basically was the foundation of Western slavery is prohibited both in the old and new testaments and particularly right here in Exodus chapter 21. So anyone who wants to say that the Bible provided the foundations of new world slavery has not properly, properly read the Bible. They're being intellectually dishonest. I want to make sure that that is emphasized again, but anyway, back to this passage, we've got, Hebrew to Hebrew slavery. So a Hebrew takes a Hebrew as his slave. The, the limitation is six years of serving. The seventh, he goes free. And then if he's hired three years before the, the year of Jubilee, he goes free three years in. If he serves and the Sabbath year happens in the middle of his service, he gets that year off. I mean, tons and tons of freedom and, and free time afforded to Hebrew slaves taken by their fellow Hebrews. It was indentured servanthood. It was basically it was employment. It was how you survived in the ancient world as a Hebrew if poverty and terrible circumstances fell into your lap. What do you do if your crop doesn't grow? What do you do if your house is destroyed by a tornado or a, or a hurricane or, or burned down? How do you do that? There's no welfare system. There's no safety. There's no social safety net. There was slavery, indentured servanthood. Now, if that man goes in alone, a single man, he comes out alone. This is the hard passage, verse four, that if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be your masters. And then he leaves alone. This is hard because you on the surface, what are you saying to me right now? What are you saying? Aha, you see, look at how God says that this slave master gets to keep this wife and the guy's children. And he's basically just chattel to produce offspring for the master. That's on the surface what it looks like it's saying. But I want to undergird all that we're going to talk about foundationally with what we said in week one of this study, that Torah exists for the protection of the community from the individual. And you cannot read any portion of Torah without making that assessment. Torah and law from God in the ancient world is saying, I need to protect my community from the individual, 
Most of our modern day laws are based on the highly individualistic westernized view of the world. I need the, I need the law to protect me from the community, but the Bible, the Torah is the exact opposite. God wanted his people to be a community and he wanted to protect the community from the crazy individuals. So how does this law where a guy leaves after serving for six years and he doesn't even take his wife? I mean, his wife was given to him. He has a wife, his children. And this guy is somehow protected. No, no, no. You're thinking about it wrong. Torah protects the community. Now, who, who are the most vulnerable members of any community in the ancient world? Women and children and the aged, basically. And so this law exists to protect the woman from the uh, abuses of men and the children from the abuses of the, the institution of slavery. So let's go into some points here that I'm going to put up on the screen. The first thing that you have to understand is that the man who became a slave to his fellow Hebrew became a slave because he was broke. Now for him to just leave with a wife and children would have endangered the wife and the children. They would have been broke themselves because he, he became a slave because he couldn't afford to live. Now, if he's given a wife and children, how is he supposed to support them if he's just being freed from slavery and he couldn't do, he couldn't manage his own life before he became a slave. Secondly, um, the point was to incentivize the slave, the former slave to work in such a way that he could later afford the bride price and come back and redeem his wife and children. This is protective for the wife and the children. This is also not implying in any way that the wife and the children were now perpetual slaves of the master. That's not the point. They would have been, um, considered slaves in, um, contract with the owner, with the slave master for six years. They would have been afforded all the rights and privileges of the Hebrew slaves that we talked about in part one. They would have had every seventh year off. They would have had a six-year agreement. They would have had the, the, the year of Jubilee to come around and release them completely from slavery. So this is not to suggest, okay, in any way, every commentator that I read about this passage is saying, in no way is this implying that the wife and the children now are perpetual slaves of the slave master. No. It is protecting them because they need food and clothing and shelter. And the man, the husband, the father probably couldn't afford that for them. And so this is what you're going to do. You're going to make sure that this guy goes out alone and then he gets the opportunity to go out there, build a life for himself, establish his home, and then come back and redeem at any moment, by the way, he could have redeemed his wife and children from his former slave master. That is what's happening here. Now, again, has to be stipulated over and over that this is not perpetual law for all time and it is not perfect and it is not something that we're going to be practicing to this day. And I'm going to show you from Ezekiel in one of the hardest passages, eventually in this study, about how we know that this was not God's eternal plan for all mankind for all time. Okay, this is not. But what you're seeing right off the bat is the law acting the way God intended the law to act, protect the community from the individual, protect the vulnerable, protect the woman, protect the children. If a man could not afford children going into slavery, he can't afford children coming out of slavery. So what do we do? It is not pretty. It is not perfect. There were no rights afforded to women and children in, in, in those days like we have today. This is an ancient world context, and God is dealing with the context that, that the people, that humankind is living in. And some people say, I don't like that excuse for the Bible. I don't like the excuse that we're talking about. Well, God is just dealing with the realities of the world as they are. Well, what do you expect? If God immunizes us and protects us and shields us from what sin causes us, and not just individually, but communally, then will we ever look to the solution that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, the law is exposing constantly our need for a better savior. <coughs> Excuse me. In this passage, the law is showing us that ultimately we are those who need to be redeemed because we cannot spiritually take care of ourselves. And guess what? There was someone who became a slave of God, who served God, who was found in appearance as a man and served and then through his blood earned the price of our redemption and brought us back to himself. Jesus Christ is the true free man 
who does the work and pays the price to redeem his family. This is the beauty. This is the beauty of um, the Torah. It continually points us to Christ. Okay, moving on. This is another hard passage in Torah. Right into Exodus chapter 21, verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the door, to, I'm sorry, to, the, to, to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. Okay, this is an opportunity, and you might not like it. Again, you're, for, you're 21st century person, I get it, but this is ancient world stuff, 3,500 years ago. And the, the law is providing opportunity for lifelong protection of this man's livelihood, but he has to be in service of his master for life. Now, the case could be made that at the year of Jubilee, he is released. So every 50 years, he's released and he's allowed to go back to his property, his inheritance. And that's a big point in the Torah about the land when it comes to slavery and work and increase and wealth that God continually does this throughout Torah. He reminds the Jews that they are tenants in his land. It is his land. He is going to give them the opportunity in this land to become wealthy and prosperous and a blessing to the nations. But ultimately the land belongs to God. And so even slavery of your fellow Hebrew is limited to 50 years tops, even if he has his ear bored through and he continues to be in perpetual servitude to this slave master because he doesn't want to leave his family behind and he doesn't want to try and go out and earn a living to provide for his family. Every 50 years, he would be released. So the choice here too, also number, number two there on the notes, is that this was the slave's choice, not the master's choice. The master couldn't take his ear and bore it through on the master's prerogative. It was the slave's prerogative. Thirdly, notice the word love. You have to admit that God is presupposing in the text that there is a very familial relationship that gets established in this slave and master contract amongst their fellow Hebrews. This is Jew and master Jew and slave Jew. Okay. So there would have been a relationship developed. And then this is also a picture of our relationship to God. Let me show you a passage of scripture that deals with that specifically is from Psalm 40, verse 5, it says, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you have planned for us not, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. In other words, God, you have done so many things for me. And then look at this, verse 6, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burn offerings and sin offerings you did not require. What is that about? It's very simple. God is, the, the psalmist is saying, I am your slave for life. You have provided me everything. You have given me a wife and children. You have brought these blessings into my life. And so I love you. I thank you for the wonders that you have given to me. And I don't want to go out on my own. And I don't want to live life on my own terms. And I do want to serve you as my God, as my owner, as my master. I am your slave for life. By the way, in the New Testament, Paul, James, Peter, James, the Lord's brother, all use the term slave, doulos, to refer to themselves in relationship to the master, the Lord Jesus Christ. They pick up on that content in Psalm 40 and in the Torah stipulations of the, of the law regarding slaves to give you the picture of what slavery really was all about. I'm sorry, what our relationship to God is really all about. Uh, in in relation to the law, we are the slaves of God. That is, our life is not our own. We don't get to choose what we want to do with our lives. He's the one who provided us all that we have, including our family, including our house, including all that we possess. Deuteronomy chapter 12, it is the Lord who gives you the power to gain wealth or Deuteronomy 18, whatever that is. But what God is showing Israel is I need you to treat each other the way that I've treated you. I've blessed you. I've prospered you. I've benefited you and you are my servants. So that was the stipulations regarding the slavery of the Hebrew and fellow Hebrew. Let's get into an even worse passage. I hope that I'm doing an effective job here unpacking this. I, I told you this is not pastoral. This is more intellectual and basically just plain study. 
Let's get into the harder passage in that. And I would say this is the hardest passage in Exodus chapter 21. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, right off the bat, we're like, whoa, huh? That's crazy. Okay, don't get, don't get shook. Stay with me. It says that she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So she's not going to go out as someone who can then go and, you know, possess property and build a field and then own it and then have an income and then go, come back and purchase her kids. That's not how, that's not how you're going to treat female slaves because they won't have that capacity. They can't, they won't do it. And they, and, and the ancient world context, very, very precarious for agricultural, uh, agricultural women. Okay. So God is saying she's not going to have that opportunity, but number two, verse eight, she says, it says, if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed right off the bat. That, that word redeemed is important for you to take note of. What is that talking about? Well, first off, it's talking about the fact that this woman can now be purchased out of slavery by someone else. A nearest kinsman, think Ruth, could purchase her out of that condition. But that also implies something else. That she was purchased in the first place as a slave to her master, but more than a slave. Are you ready? As a wife. Now, Foundationally, we are talking about worst case scenario for the most impoverished members of the community in ancient Israel. Worst case scenario, you are selling your daughter as a slave. And you say, I can't believe the Bible is even addressing this. Well, do you want God to avoid worst case scenarios in our lives? It seems to me that God is very comfortable engaging his people in worst case scenarios, aka 400 years of slavery to Pharaoh. He engages them there. He engages us in our worst case scenario. He engages Israel in their worst case scenario when they should have been worshiping the Lord and they were fornicating and sacrificing their children into the fires of Molech as the pagan nations around them did. God was always involved in worst case scenario situations in ancient Israel. Nothing about this should scare us. And it doesn't scare God. He is saying, in the worst case scenario where you have to sell your daughter into slavery, She's going to be treated as a wife to whoever purchases her. And so some issues we have to talk about, some foundations we have to talk about regarding wives in ancient Israel. Number one, all marriages in ancient Israel were arranged. They were all arranged. In fact, all marriages in the ancient Near East and most of history in all parts of the world were arranged. Modern romantic love is a fairly new invention that probably came about I would say around the Renaissance. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. And even in America today, if you look at Amish culture and if you look at Muslim countries and even in some Jewish kibbutz, some Jewish communes in the land of Israel, arranged marriages are still a thing. I know this is hard for us to understand, but it just kind of amplifies the original point that you cannot you cannot ignore the cultural gap between the modern world and the ancient world addressed here in Torah. To do so is intellectually dishonest. So we were talking about in a context in which marriages were arranged, and in that arrangement, someone purchases the woman by paying the father a bride price. This is a man who is destitute. He has a, wife, he has a daughter, and here's a way that he can, in some ways, provide for the rest of his family by marrying off his daughter to a man who will pay him a bride price, a dowry. Second, uh, it is a marriage because she would be needed. She would need to be redeemed. And then he cannot let her out of his house as he does a male. She is to belong to him in perpetuity as a wife. He cannot sell her. He cannot um, abandon her financially. She is not to be on her own. Now he says if he designates for her for her son, that's verse 9, so he could have purchased her for his son to marry. He's not saying, now you have her as your sex slave, sex slave, and then you're going to give her to your son as a sex slave. No, no, no. This is purchasing her for his son as a bride. And then if he takes another wife, because polygamy, again, was a state of fact in the ancient world. This is not God outlawing polygamy. I get it, but polygamy happened. And God says, listen, if you're going to do this, just like with Deuteronomy 21, he says, if you're going to take another wife, you better write your original wife a certificate of divorce. You cannot just abandon her. She has to have rights and privileges to be remarried to somebody else who will take care of her. 
Okay, God is allowing for less than enviable conditions be, for the protection of the individual, for the protection of the vulnerable, I'm sorry. And he says, if he takes another wife to himself, he cannot diminish her, he cannot treat her less than he would treat the second wife. Third, uh, there are protections for the woman to leave if the man who purchases her does not do these things for her. That's the last line. If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing. If she is abandoned by her husband who purchased her, who paid to bring her into his house, then she is to be allowed out of the house for free. She needs not pay anything. Now, again, you're going to have trouble with this text. There's no getting around it. It is not pretty. This is not pastoral content, I'm just telling you. But we're trying to unpack the difficult passages of the Bible so that we can learn about how God deals with us, even in our context. In less than desirable conditions, God wants to protect the weakest and the most vulnerable amongst us. Let me summarize all of this content about selling your daughter as a slave with one final note here. God is restraining authority and power. Who has all the power in this relationship? The man who buys the woman, the man who buys the slave. He has all the power. He has all the authority. That's his slave. He's the master. And every law, if you read it rightly and honestly, is restricting his power and authority. It is saying to the person with authority, you are going to act like me. I am a God who could snuff out sinners like that. And you're going to treat sinners the way that I do, with mercy, compassion, and care. This is why Jesus in the New Testament will say that you, um, you see God showing favor and grace to the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust. Uh, so this is the restraint of authority, the restraint of power in the Bible, in the Torah, and God is doing this over and over again. Something that might not be comfortable for you, for you to hear, but it is absolutely true in the Bible, okay? is that there was a bunch of happy slaves in the Bible. Okay, now again, please don't take this as I am promoting slavery because look at these very limited examples in the Bible. No, no, no. Um, that's not the point. The point, though, is to show you that the relationship between slave and, and master in the ancient world has nothing, no corollary to what we understood as chattel slavery in America and in the, and in, um, the, the British Empire. You have Joseph, who is so honored to serve Potiphar that he does not disrespect Potiphar by sleeping with his wife when the opportunity is afforded to him. He wants to honor Potiphar. You have Eleazar of Damascus. People overlook this guy, but this is Abraham's number one slave. And Abraham, when he doesn't have Isaac, says to God, I don't have a son to inherit all my property. Shall it all go to Eleazar? So Eleazar knew and this is important. He knew that he was going to be the inheritor of all of Abraham's blessing. And Abraham had wealth beyond your imagination. He had 318 armed men in his, in his possession. He had an army. He owned an army. You're a rich man if you own an army. And yet Eleazar is the one who was assigned to go and find a bride for Isaac, thus further jeopardizing his opportunity to be the inheritor of Abraham's possessions. And he does this with joy. He does this prayerfully. If you read the story in Genesis 24, he is the, every step of the way uh, seeking Abraham's benefit, seeking, seeking God's will and blessing over this entire process. There's no question Eleazar wants to serve and please his master, Abraham. Another example would have been the slave girl who served Naaman the Syrian who had leprosy. And she was taken captive in a war that Syria won against Israel. And yet when Naaman comes down with leprosy, it is the slave girl's suggestion that Naaman go to Israel and find the prophet who could heal him of his leprosy. My friend, we are not looking at slaves who are hateful of their slave owners and really hoping for their death and demise. Not, not many, at least in, in the Old Testament story, but the last example would have been Elisha. The Bible says that Elisha washed the hands of Elijah for 13 years. He was basically Elisha, Elijah's slave, 
And it was through that relationship that he loves Elijah. He learns from Elijah. He is anointed by Elijah and he becomes the successor of Elijah and receives a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Over and over and over again, we see the Bible showing us that the relationship between slave and slave master was far more cordial, um, brotherly, uh, familial than we can understand in the hideous conditions of westernized slavery. Again, we are talking about a subject that is so difficult that I kind of repeat this again. It's in my head as I'm hearing you hear the content and I'm speaking it. We are not talking about this as God's ultimate plan to have slaves as slave masters. Absolutely not. This is God working with the human condition results resulted from sin, human sin, that would in unrestrained measure take advantage of each other, abuse each other, hurt each other, enslave each other. And God, every step of the way, is restraining the tendency of humankind to hurt one another. That is how you are to read these passages. Uh, let me address something else in in the Old Testament law, in the Torah. And this brings me to our question that was, that was brought to my attention. Somebody posted this on our Slavery Part 1 video. And I want to read this question because I think this one's a good one. And then we're going to address the text. So I'm excited to do this. Here was the, the post, the comment. I guess this is Bugsy. Is that Bugsy0333? Welcome to the show. Glad that you're watching, Bugsy. He says, or she says, the laws, the laws governing non-Hebrew slaves were more harsh than those governing Hebrew slaves. Non-Hebrew slaves could be owned permanently and bequeathed to the owner's children, whereas Hebrew slaves were treated as servants and were released after six years of service or the occurrence of, the jubil of a year jubilee. Thank you for being honest. That's exactly right. You've been following along. Then he says this, or she says this. So non-Hebrews so non were chattel slaves as per definition. And here's the text that we're going to deal with. Leviticus 25, 44 to 46 says this. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them, you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life, but you must not... Rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. And then this is the question. I was wondering in what context would it be ac acceptable for one person to own another person as their property? And that is a fantastic question. And I'm so glad that you're asking. And I have two answers for you. Well, three answers. So let me play devil's advocate. And I'm talking about regarding our own context. Here's my first question to your question. In what context would it be acceptable for one person to own another person as their property? Do we not still own people? Now, right away, you're going to say, no, that's obliterated. It's gone. Wrong. It's just not true. There are several ways that we still own people. Number one, we have prisons, which I know that if you technically look up the legal, the legal status of prisoners, they are not technically the property of the state. But what does it mean to be owned except to have your rights limited by somebody against your will? And in prisons, we own people. We afford inmates limited human rights under the powers of the state so that that person is hindered from causing more harm than they have already caused. The prisoner is subjected to undesirable accommodations. They are told what to do, where to sleep. They work for far less than minimum wage. And again, you can fact check me, and I've already done this. You can Google search this question, and they will absolutely say, no, they're not technically owned by the state. But by all accounts, in practicality, their lives are lived in such a way that they are beholden to the state and answer to the state in, I think, even worse ways than ancient world slaves would have answered to their slave masters in some ways. Because at least it could be assumed 
and I might be looking at the text through rose-colored glasses here, that the slave of Israel would have been treated handsomely. Actually, I'm not looking at that through rose-colored glasses because there are several instances, and we're going to get to them, where we see foreign slaves who come in as slaves to Israel actually become wealthy, and there is a stipulation in the law where they became so wealthy, God makes sure that they don't abuse the Jews as a result that God provides the right of redemption for the nearest relative to redeem their Hebrew brother who had become a slave to a foreigner among them. How do foreigners enslave Hebrews except by becoming wealthy in the land? Anyway, that's my first example of where we still own people. Let's, number, let's do number two. Some instances of power of attorney, where someone's faculties are diminished due to illness or mental incompetence. Perhaps you will remember the case of Terry, uh, Terry Schiavo. It made huge headlines in 2005 in this country where her husband basically starved the woman to death under his power of attorney because she had had a conversation with him that she didn't want to remain a vegetable for the rest of her life. And her, and her family, her mother and her father and her, uh, I think it was her sister, literally watched Terry Schiavo starve to death, quite possibly against her will because her husband didn't want to keep her alive based on a conversation that he had with her. He did not even have a living will written. And it was a huge debacle. It was a big mess, became a big uh, political firebrand. Some of you might remember it, um, but it's an example of where one person's rights are limited and are beheld and this person's rights are beholden, sorry, to someone else's rights and powers and authority. Conservatorship is another way in which modern people own other people. Again, I know that you can Google search me and you can find me the text. I get it. Conservatorship is not technically ownership. No, I'm not talking about ownership, but we are talking about the limitation of rights because that is what it means here. That is what owning people means. To own someone is to limit what they are allowed to do at your own discretion. And that's exactly what conservatorship is and power of attorney is and prisons are. They are limiting people's rights and most often to protect society. So what is conservatorship? I have a definition. It is, quote, a legal structure in which a person's personal, economic, and legal decision-making power is ceded to others. Consider the case of Britney Spears. Consider the case of Cher. And now on the back end, oh, Cher, who just recently filed for temporary legal conservatorship of her, uh, of her son, Elijah, because he is unable to manage his assets due to severe mental health issues. But, but look at Britney Spears, who the moment, <laughs> moments after her conservatorship is revoked, her father's conservatorship of her is revoked, She's out there slinging swords on an Instagram reel. And you, and you instantly think, oh, that's, that's why. That's why she was, <laughs> she was put into that condition. It's sad. Friend, we're not, dealing with, we're not dealing with heaven. We're dealing with earth. And earth is hard. It's filled with sin. It's filled with people taking advantage of other people. And rights being diminished. And... Uh, unfairness abounding. That's what kind of makes it earth. And there are always going to be legal structures in place that are less than enviable, but ultimately totally necessary to protect the community and to protect the peace of the land, the peace of the uh, society. Let's go to one more. Uh, this is more hot topic-y, surrogacy. I can't stipulate this enough. I am 100% against surrogacy, and you should be too. Surrogacy is modern-day human trafficking. Many times, gay and lesbian couples go the route of surrogacy because they cannot naturally produce children. So they will hire, they will rent a womb, they will pay someone to bear an innocent human life, and usually this person is selected very carefully. In other words, they are shot for. I mean, you can complain about the Bible all you want and these laws about ancient Israel slavery 3,500 years ago all you want, but you better comp start complaining. You better be at least somewhat honest and say, is this modern day idea of surrogacy a good thing? Do, and I always talk about this whenever it's issues of birth and childhood. I want you always to answer these questions honestly by saying, if I was the child, what would I be happy with? 
If you were the child, would you be happy with being um, a screened, selected fetus that was injected into someone's womb who you will never meet, maybe, who is now going to be forever disconnected to you, even though in gestation was totally connected to you. And then you're going to be placed into this family of two dads or two moms and forever robbed, listen, of the opportunity to have a natural biological mother or father. Would you be okay with that? And if you can say to me honestly, yes, I would like that situation. And please don't throw at me, well, it'd be better than being abused and it would be better than me. I understand those are bad situations as well. But this is willful, determinative choice before the child is even conceived in some cases to basically own a human being. Now, you may not believe that an unborn baby has human rights, but I do. And I believe that the scriptures speak to that. And by the way, the onus is on you to explain why we call it a double homicide when a pregnant woman is murdered. But we can also murder the baby if the woman wants to inside the womb through abortion. I mean, what what society is really nailing it here? That's my question. That's my question. And ultimately, my point is not to argue the merits of these cases, but on the necessity of some of these instances where in a fallen world, again, the limitation of human rights is necessary for the protection of society, the, at least in the first three cases. Surrogacy is an abomination. And I just want to bring to your attention this week, Pope Francis made news by blasting surrogacy as deplorable it is a practice that turns a child into an object of trafficking and well done for this very liberal Pope. I am amazed that he said it, but he is right on spot on with that assessment of what surrogacy is. Now, that is my tongue in cheek, if you will, just cultural examination answer. Let me now address the question through a biblical response. And here's my answer to you. You've buried the lead. When you get to Leviticus chapter 25 through 44, you've got to understand the context of this passage is not, this is what I want you to do with foreign people around you. God does not say, thou shalt make these people slaves. He is not instituting chattel slavery. Once again, and this, I repeat, God is dealing with the fallen human condition and the resultant societies in which people need protections, weakest and most vulnerable members of his family need protections from the outside community. So every passage, if you're going to do an honest study of the Bible, every passage has to be read in context. So what is the context of, of Leviticus, Leviticus 25? It is the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, and that cannot be overstated. Let's go to it on the Bible cam real quickly. Here we are. My Bible calls it the Sabbath year, but also, oh, sorry, it's the Sabbath year. And then verse eight, it starts with this subtitle, the year of Jubilee. So that's the context for this text. And in Leviticus 25, God is devoting a huge chunk of text to how are Israel, how is Israel supposed to relate to him in regards to possessing the land? So the, the land, first of all, it must be understood, is the property of God. It was given to the, to the people of Israel as a promise. And in the year of Jubilee, to make sure that Israel continued to own the land, all debts were canceled. Every slave was released, slaves of Israel, Israel Hebrew slaves. All property, that is land, was returned back to the original assignee under the designations listed in the uh, book of Joshua. So God commands them when he goes to the land, divvy up the land. Here's where Gad's going to be. Here's where Asher's going to be. Here's where Benjamin's going to be. Here's where Judah's going to be. He tells them, this is where your land. And then it goes, and if you've ever read through Joshua, it's great in the beginning. And then the back end of Joshua is very difficult to read because God is stipulating all the boundaries of all the people's lands and inheritance. And he says, this is your inheritance forever for your tribe and for your family and for your clan. And I want you to always have possession of this land. And that is the point of the year of Jubilee. The year of the Jubilee 
Now, now I don't, you can't miss this because this is the foundation for the whole chapter. The year of Jubilee is intended to remind Israel that ultimately the land belongs to God. They are his servants in it and they are to perpetually own it. By the way, Israel is still in the land today and everybody is mad about it. Not everybody, but half the country is mad about it and they don't like what they're doing and they <laughs> they call them colonialists and all this kind of stuff, but it doesn't matter because God is going to make sure that his people have that land and they are going to have that land whether you like it or not. Back to the point though in, in Leviticus 25. The big point is God is saying the land is mine. You don't believe me? Let's take a look at the passages itself. This is back to Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. You are, my, you are strangers and sojourners with me. Uh, verse 24, the very next verse. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow, allow a redemption of the land. So what do the first verses that I just shared with you tell you? You're going to own this land as my temporary residence in it, actually it's my land, you're going to take possession of it temporarily and you're going to allow for redemption of the land so that no one loses their inheritance. And then just, um, and this is all again, before this law about slaves that is so difficult to read. Look at, the, uh, look at verse 35 with me. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner and he shall live with you. Now, right off the bat, in a chapter that's about to talk about taking strangers and sojourners as slaves, why would God then stipulate just before then that this is how you're going to treat your brother, your fellow Hebrew who is poor? If they are commanded to, tr to take slaves of foreign people, if God is saying, I want you to enslave foreign people, why on earth would that treatment be the corollary for how you should treat your fellow brother who becomes poor. It makes no sense. No, understand. God is expecting that there will be people who come into the land as strangers and sojourners, and you are going to treat them well because he stipulates you were strangers and sojourners in Israel. He says that in Leviticus 25. And then this is all to protect the perpetual ownership of the land at the hand of God's people, Israel. Now, watch this. Verse 39 of the same chapter. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells him to sells, sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as, as a sojourner. He shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. Again, that's the emphasis of this chapter. And then it says this, he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, your Jubilee, all debts were canceled and the family goes out together and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. The emphasis of this chapter is perpetually on the ownership of the land. God says, this land is Israel's land. I have promised it to them. I have given it to them. And it is their land forever. And that it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when God gives the land in promise to Abraham actually Genesis chapter 15. You want to be happy about this for one particular reason, because if God's promises to ancient Israel are still in effect today, his promises to you as spiritual Israel or as the church are also in effect today. Promises like, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I will forgive you of all your sins. I will bring you into myself. I will come back and redeem you. I'll bring you home to heaven. Those are our promises as God's people in the Christian world. And we have assurance of these promises because his promises to the natural born children of Israel are still in effect to this day. I get excited when I see Israel taking ownership of the land. I do because it's a reminder that God's word is sure and his promises never fail. Amen. I mean, I'm, I'm getting preachy, but it's necessary for us to understand the relationship of the land to the nation of Israel and God's promises to them for it. The last verse, almost the last verse of Leviticus 25. Let's look at it. Verse 55. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. The word there is Ebed, it is slaves. They are my servants, Ebed or slaves, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The end of the chapter, Israel is, is asked, is expected to understand your slaves so you're going to understand how to treat slaves because you are my slaves and how I have treated you, you are going to treat those that you own. 
By the way, there are some corollaries in the New Testament about this. We are supposed to forgive as the Lord forgave us. We are supposed to love as the Lord loved us. We are supposed to bear each other's burdens as the Lord bore our burdens. We are always, as God's people, expected to treat other people the way that God treats us. And in the ancient world context, God says, you're going to treat slaves the way that I've treated you. So now let me ask you a question. Skeptics, listen. You have your choice of any nation on earth to be to be enslaved to. <laughs> Again, this is a hypothetical question. Any ancient people group to be enslaved to anywhere in the world. You have one choice. Which nation are you choosing? You're going to choose Babylon? You're going to choose Babylon where they make you a eunuch, cut off your genitals, change your name, and force you to take astrology classes? You're going to choose Persia where you might be crucified because you're never truly a, a citizen of that country? And you, and you disobey and you steal something from your, from your owner or you're even accused of being a, a thief? Or are you going to go with Israel? Israel, which had constant reminders from God that they were slaves and that the slaves that live among them are to be treated with dignity and respect. Because why? They are not, they are not slaves to Egypt, but they are still slaves to God. So they need to treat their slaves the way that God treats them. Again... <laughs> say this again and again in this, in this episode. We are not suggesting that this is God's be-all, end-all commandment regarding slavery and that he is cool with it and we should institute these laws today. No! Ancient world context. So now to the difficult passage. Here again what it is saying. Your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy from the nations around you. Why does God stipulate this law in a passage that is dealing with the perpetual ownership of the land uh, in the hand of Israel. Very simple. God is saying, foreigners are not going to work the system in such a way that they come into possession of the land. They're going to be perpetual slaves. Couple of things now we have to talk about. Number one, please notice two key words. Those who sojourn with you and buy. You cannot buy what's not for sale. These people would have sold themselves willingly to Israel. This is not forcible slave trading. There is no text. There is no text in the Bible where that is the case where God says, I want you to go and enslave these foreign countries against their will. That does not happen in Torah. So these people are sojourning among Israel. Now, the question is, why would they be living among Israel? Because the land of Israel is blessed because they would have looked at these laws where they don't have to sacrifice, where you don't have to sacrifice your children for fruits and vegetables in the fall, where you don't have to, where, where women are protected, where children are blessed, where prosperity flourishes because the Lord their God is the God of heaven and earth, where they get to rest every seventh day, where they get to release all the deaths every 50 years, where they get to rest for a whole year every seventh year. What nation wouldn't be attracted to come and live amongst Israel? If they had lived up to the Torah, Israel would have been the most attractive ancient people on the planet. So these are sojourners who say, wow, I, I want to be with you. By the way, we have a case. There's a whole book about a person from a foreign descent who desperately wanted to be part of this land. What's, what's her name? Ruth. She couldn't even imagine going back to Moab. She wanted to be part of Israel, even though there was a famine in the land in Israel. Okay, so they were bought, meaning that they were for sale, number one, number two, and number one, and then they were sojourning among them, which means they wanted to be part of the community. They had the opportunity to be sold as slaves for protection of their life, they, to make a living, to survive the ancient world. Number two, uh, they were to be bought, but not brought into the covenant community. There are other passages that underlie, and we talked about them in part one, where foreigners who were enslaved by Israel were to be circumcised and then therefore brought into covenant community. The assumption here in Leviticus is that these are people who wanted to work, but they did not, but did not want to worship. They did not want to become Jews. They did not want to enter into covenantal relationship with Yahweh. So these are people who would have been bought as slaves, but not brought into covenantal relationship. Now understand that the covenantal relationship to be converted to a Jew, which is exactly what Ruth becomes by, by nature of her relationship to Boaz, you are now afforded all of the rights, privileges, and, and blessings of Israel. These are people who would have said, I, I don't like your God. I don't, want to, I don't want your God, but I do want to live. I want to survive, and I want to provide for my family in the ancient world. So understand that context here. That though they would have been afforded the opportunity to be brought into covenant, they, re, re, they would have rejected it and therefore been treated as perpetual slaves. Third, the emphasis on the ownership of the land. 
Um, this is protecting, again, Israel from seeing foreigners come in, work the system, get blessed, get prosperous, and then turn turn about and, and enslave Israelites. And then th- foreigners own the land and the, and the Israelites don't. This is the context of this very difficult text. But I think an intellectual reading, an honest reading, shows you that it is not what you think it is on the surface. This is not God determining for all time that his people should be enslaving other people willfully and if necessary against the will of those other people. That's not what this text is about. That's not what the chapter is about. This chapter is about God making sure that Israel owns the land that he, according to his oath and covenant, promised them. And they are not to take that lightly. And they're to treat their slaves as God treated them. It still might not be the answer you want, but it's the answer I'm giving you. Ezekiel, fast forward, Israel goes into exile and God raises up a prophet named Ezekiel to prophesy about their return to the land. Check this out, just as I, I, as I hinted at before, that and prove, and I'm about to prove to you that this is not perpetual law for all time, how, how Israel is to be uh, treating their neighbors and, their, and, and um, the foreigners among them. Uh, when you get to the end of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is talking about the people of Israel repopulating the land and taking back possession of the land according to their tribal inheritances. But there is a very key qualifier on the back half of the exile, and it is a hint, and this is exciting, of what we see happening in the New Testament. Let's take a look at the passage in Ezekiel 47. It says this in verse 21. You shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. So right there, go back to those ancient laws and boundaries designations in Joshua. Um, He says this, you shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native born children of Israel with you. With you, they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Let me read that text again, because it's just going to be skipped over. If you're just reading this out of context, he says with you who sojourners and the people who were, who were um, residing in the land with you on the coming out of uh, exile from Babylon, they're going to have an allotted inheritance amongst the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall, shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord. This, I, I can't emphasize how gracious this moment is from God in Ezekiel chapter 47. The longitudinal aim of God is simple, that all nations of the earth would be blessed through his blessing Israel and Abraham's children. Now, we are spiritually blessed through Abraham and his children, through Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for our sins. We are saved by the blood of the true Jew, Jesus Christ. Number two, though, that those blessings of prosperity, those blessings of land ownership, those blessings of wealth and increase and um, uh, opportunity, those fall on us in Christ Jesus as Gentiles. And here in B.C. uh, 480, Ezekiel is laying the groundwork for that promise that the foreigners are no longer to be enslaved. They are now to be inheritances, inheritors of the land amongst you. This is beautiful. This is God saying, ultimately, my plan, my big picture, my game plan for the world is to see you and the nations blessed through my generosity. That is how you read those texts. Let me end this content with four big ideas about slavery. Number one, four big ideas that we can take from Torah about slavery. Number one, all human beings, even slaves and bond servants have rights, privileges and protections under the law of God. Number two, slavery and bond servants are preferable to poverty and destitution. Number number three, family must be maintained and provided for even in the condition of poverty and bond servants. That's why you don't let the woman go out on her own where she can't make a living and she will starve to death. Number four, the land, the promise of God is perpetual and required social guardrails to ensure it. That is how you read that text. Very difficult. Again, like I said to you guys, this was not pastoral. This was far more investigative of the text. Um, I pray that you can understand what I've taught. It's not easy content, but I, I do so 
value our time together on YouTube. We've been together an hour now, and I hope that it was a beneficial hour to you. And I pray that it helps you trust God and his word even more than you currently do. Guys, have you heard that you can be part of the Tim Hatch Live membership? And there are five levels. You're enjoying the free one right now. And the deep dive will always be free. So I would encourage you to check out those other four levels. The legacy level was just introduced. That is where I will be sending you personalized gifts made by me. I don't know if you know this, but I'm somewhat of a craftsman. (laughs) So I look forward to getting those into your hands. We support Project Rescue and the American Bible Society as you support us. And the final way you can support this channel and this content is to like it, subscribe to the channel and share it. And I will be back with you guys on the deep end at 7.30 on Tuesday night. It's been awesome to be with you. I pray that God blesses you and uh, guides you in his word and in his truth. Take care.